Welcome to the HCC Podcast. Our mission is to nurture love for God, love for self, and love for others as the highest goal of humanity. May the following message nurture that love in your life. And remember, you're always welcome at HCC. It's a perfect church for less than perfect people. Peace. Church, I'd like you to follow along with me in a prayer today that I will lead, you will respond, Lord, have mercy. So let's go to this prayer. and I'm just asking you to please follow along. And when it's, when it's time for you, the people, to respond, you respond. And let's hold in corporate tension right now our desire for the Lord to make a difference. He is a way maker. And even when we don't see, it doesn't seem like he's working. He is working. That's why we pray this prayer. God of all the world, we are pained by war in the Ukraine. Your word tells us that the human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. We feel that now. Our hearts are heavy with the sights and sounds of war. We beg you to turn the hearts of those bent on war toward peace. We ask for unity around the world against this war. Use us here to pray and work for peace there. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is the essence of the secret of contentment. Recognizing that there is a God beyond any of our circumstances that has His hand on all of it. That somehow, some way, God is beyond our comprehension working all things together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. This was our theme last year. Romans 8.28, it is the foundation of all of our sense of contentment. And that is a secret to most people. It is a secret to most people that contentment is available in this contemporary age. And we need to prepare our hearts to hear God's word clearly. Hebrews 4.12 tells us that his word is sharper than any two-edged sword. It is living and active. It is actually alive and energy. And when we tap into it, we tap into the very life energy of God himself. And in doing so, we have a rise of hope to believe that he indeed is a way maker, that he indeed is working when we don't see him working. And we must confess and believe that ultimately the things we say, the things we read, are truths. Not based on what we hear on the news or on commentaries or on talk radio or any of those magazine articles, but we believe what we know is true in the Word of God. And this is us establishing through our liturgies, through our consistent liturgies of attending church and rehearsing Scripture and reciting and confessing together. It is our liturgy of developing new neural pathways that is founded, that are founded in contentment and peace. 
So as is our custom, would you please stand with me as we enter into that space where we prepare our hearts and minds in order to open ourselves to God's Word and to hear what He has to say. Let's confess this together. God, I choose to slow my breath and relinquish my worries. I open my hands to pray. Come, Holy Spirit, to my mind. I receive Your comfort. Come, Holy Spirit, to my heart. I receive Your peace. Come, Holy Spirit, to my soul. I receive the Father's love for me. I am here to receive what You have for me today. And before you're seated, just remember this. The Lord who loves you says these words to you. I am He. I am He who will sustain you. I have made you. I will carry you. I will sustain you. And I will rescue you. People in the Ukraine and other places under attack... I am He. I am He who will sustain you. I have made you. I will carry you. I will sustain you. And I will rescue you. And as we know and as I've taught you, we are not necessarily talking about He will save you from a stub toe or a loss of promotion or even death. And as Carrie mentioned just a moment ago, in this world you will have troubles, but Jesus said, fear not, I have overcome the world. Amen? Amen. Amen. God bless you. You can be seated. So what's the secret? Contentment is Christ. So if that's the secret and you know it, then you have got to live it. The secret of contentment is no longer a secret at Heritage because we're wearing t-shirts about it. If you want to wear a shirt, you got to live it or at least want to live it. Sometimes I wear the shirt just to force me to live it. Because people are saying, oh, the secret, live the secret. Oh, oh, yeah, that's right. I'm supposed to be living the secret. (laughs) So if you want to do that too, you're welcome to do that. It's all in our app. You can get these shirts. If you want to testify to a sense of contentment, you're welcome to do that. This is our memory passage for the year. Let's say it together. For I have learned to be content with whatever I have. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through Christ who strengthens me. And one of the most difficult things to face or encounter is the reality that money is a monster. It is a monster. And the monster that it is, it it terrorizes us, it haunts us, it scares us, and we often live in that tension. And I got to tell you right now, what I'm hearing from a lot of my friends and also folks on TV and other places are saying, we're all concerned about what Europe is going to do to our money. How much more can gas cost us? How much more can milk cost us? How much more are prices going to raise? And what's my wallet going to be like? And can I be faithful to church and also faithful to my lifestyle as well? And what is going to happen? And uh, that's the money monster. <laughs> that's the monster of money. Listen to this. 
from uh, VeryWellMind.com. It's a great little clearinghouse of really good psychological information and uh, sociological information. It's really a quite a quality site. It says this, the best way to ruin a conversation is to bring up the topic of money. It's the, it's the number one worst thing to talk about with anyone. More than politics, more than sex, money, to bring up money, start really actually talking about money is just the worst thing that you can do to kill a conversation. Gallup's annual health and healthcare poll, 30% of Americans reported putting off physical healthcare due to worry about money. They put off surgeries. They put off visiting the doctor. They put off engaging in medi uh, getting medicine. Because of fear, worry about money. 60% put off mental health care due to worry about money. It's just too expensive. I can't afford to get my medicine. I'm not, I'm not going to go to the doctor. I'll just suck it up and deal with this persistent cough or pain in my side or whatever it might be. I don't want to risk the money. I don't want to risk the money on getting better mentally or emotionally because I don't want to spend that money on that fear, worry about mo the money monster will cause people not to go to the doctor or the counselor. The APA reveals that in 2021, 53% of Americans reported utilizing food, binging entertainment, or social media, and using alcohol marijuana to cope with worry related to money. It's silent because it applies. <laughs> just, just saying. I, I'm, I'm feeling it in my side. I got three fingers pointing back in me. This idea of, oh my gosh, you know, I'd rather just forget about the world and binge another series of Netflix for another three days. You know, it's that kind of thing, that temptation that is a reality of being there. Money is indeed a monster. It does terrorize us. And you remember as being a little kid, whatever the monster was in your life, I remember uh, looking at my door. My door in my childhood bedroom was a pine door, and it had all of these knots and all of these weird convoluted grains in it. Now, a young boy's mind made up all kinds of monster-type faces that were coming out of that door I got people shaking their head like, oh yeah, I had a door like that. I had monsters in my door too. <laughs> you know, we had monsters under our bed. I, I remember that I had the sincere belief as an eight-year-old after a neighbor, a mom in the neighborhood, took all the eight-year-olds in the neighborhood to see Jaws in 1976. Brilliant. It was brilliant. My bedroom carpet was dark blue, which was the ocean, and I was quite convinced a shark was going to come up out of that ocean of carpet and eat me at any moment. We have the tendency, even as adults, to fantasize about all of these things that may harm us or hurt us or attack us. We are fearful of monsters still, and money is, in my opinion, perhaps the strongest most terrorizing monster. And by and large, it's perhaps because we have these huge first world problems. We have a challenge to us in the first world. Although we live in an incredible uh, region, economy of prosperity, 
prosperity in the first world of America, I'm speaking of America particularly because I can't speak as a German or a Frenchman, I can only speak as an American, it's, also, it's not only our blessing, but it's also our curse. Now, why would I say that? Why would I say that it's possible? It's because it goes back to that whole idea of capitalism and consumerism. Capitalism is the greatest system of economy on the earth, the greatest culture, greatest lifestyle on the very earth that we have right now. Consumerism is the potential termite in the wood of the, of the capitalistic culture that could basically bring it all down. Why do I say that? It's because of these things. It has historically been this way with all prosperous cultures, not just America, but also all cultures. When you think of cultures becoming prosperous, often they lose their sense of God, they lose their sense of morality, they lose their sense of fidelity to ethics as they become softer, more comfortable, everything's more convenient, they become less apt to defend themselves. Just read any national history as they prospered they got weaker and weaker over time. And that was the erosion that consumerism in any of those cultures actually caused. I want to bring to you a, a long quote. Come on, you're going to have to stick with me here. It's going to be multiple slides. But just pay attention, listen carefully, and let's read through this Christian historian's understanding of early America. Tim Daly cites this in his uh, Christian history textbook. By the beginning of the 1700s, the American churches had been overtaken by a creeping paralysis. The evangelical enthusiasm of the pioneering generation of colonists had not been maintained. Now, you know that the, basically the colonists from Europe were like, we want to go establish a land where we can worship freely, where the Bible can be our base, where God can rule as king. We want a country where God is king. That was all of the mantra. That was in the early to mid-1600s. By the, by the first of the 1700s, Tim is saying that that had already been lost. It was a creeping paralysis. The reasons for this decline are clear. The development of commerce and with it the increase of wealth bred a materialism which blunted the keen edge of Protestant witness. The spiritual fervor of the fathers was not reproduced in their children. The Puritan ideal of a society ruled by God had faded from view. Previously, believers had to agree and live out, and by the way, agreeing and living out meant that other people would come and testify that you actually lived what you said you believed. This was an actual interview process. Previously, believers in that early American Puritan church that wanted God as king and to rule with God had to agree and live out a Christian lifestyle covenant to qualify for church membership now. Now, this was in serious compromise. The notorious halfway covenant, halfway covenant, allowed the children of uncommitted parents to be received in baptism. Up until this time, only those who could testify to a saving experience of Christ and a faithful Orthodox life were admitted as members to the American Christian Church at that time. Now, with the halfway covenant, any person's not scandalous in life. What does that mean? You're not a bank robber. 
you're not obviously known in the community as a thief or an adulterer or a liar or a cheat. You know, you don't have a reputation of, you know, selling cigarettes to kids, you know, or something like that, or, uh, you know, giving sugar to minors. Terrible. Persons not scandalous in life could be included. Listen to this. Religious respectability rather than spiritual rebirth and biblical morality had become the criterion of early American Christian faith. Religious respectability took precedence over almost anything else because the bar had to be lowered. Prosperity was rising Comfort and convenience was being established. More and more faithfulness to church and evangelicalism and the gospel and biblical morality, piety, was was being lost. Now, if you remember, I read you a quote from John Chrysostom that he said he lamented that the people of Christians all around the region had become uninterested in attending church and being faithful to their fellowships and tithing and giving as they did. They all were running off to the stadiums and to the amphitheaters and the theaters. And that was in the 300s. We're talking about any society, not just American society, not just European society or or Hispanic society or anything. We're talking about humanity. Whether it's Asian culture African culture, European culture, Hispanic culture, it doesn't matter. This, is, this particular deterioration pattern is found in every society that as consumerism rises and the world becomes about me and not about God or anyone else, we start to devolve. And therein lies the ruin of Rome even. Read the histories, you can read Augustine's City of God, and you see it all the way through how it just simply started to devolve because of exactly this pattern, and Americans and capitalists are not insulated from that danger. Galatians 6.15, it doesn't matter whether we're religious or not. Now, in your translation, it may say it doesn't matter if you've been circumcised or not. Well, if we take that literally, then we say it can't apply to women. What we know is that Paul is speaking code here. And what we know from good biblical interpretation, he's talking about people who are so hyped up on religious respectability that nothing else really matters. The Pharisees were in that camp. And Jesus is saying, if you're just attending church to be religiously respectable, This is not at all what Christianity is. He doesn't know you. It doesn't matter whether we're religious or not. What counts is whether we have been transformed into a new creation. This is really the challenge of contentment in a capitalistic, rife with consumerism culture. Because all of us are in danger of becoming consumers, not Christians where we are interested even in church of saying, come on, preacher boy, do something for me, or I'll tune you out and I'll tune somebody else in. 
I don't like the way they play music. I want the way they play music. I don't like it too hot or too cold. I'm going to go somewhere where it's right temperature for me. It's that whole sense and sensibility of consumerism where there's no fidelity to community. There's no fidelity to a covenant contract between people and a fellowship. It's simply religious respectability and the fact that we get our consumer preferences met. This is a great danger even in the day in which we live. Because the bottom line is this, the money monster of consumerism was corrupting capitalism from pre-colonial times. Again, we're just talking about America because that's who we are, it's where we come from. The creep of consumerism continues to anesthetize, terrorize, and debilitate most Americans mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. The money monster is the reason passive Christian commitment Sleep aids and anti-anxiety drugs are so common in the West. Generally, Christians appear powerless in the face of the money monster. What in the world are we to do? Watch this. There are 10 million millionaires in the world. Five million of them live in the United States. At least 80% of humanity lives on less than $10 a day. And the rest of us find ourselves somewhere in the middle. And people routinely list money issues as a primary concern and a massive stress inducer in their lives. We're skeptical about organizations that ask for our money. We're nervous about not being able to have stuff when we really want it. And we believe wholeheartedly in allowing ourselves and our kids to live like everyone else. Well, here's the latest on everyone else. The most conservative estimates regarding the average credit card debt per household is, this is not including car loans and school loans, $14,743. And in all the 609.8 million credit cards held by U.S. consumers, the total U.S. consumer debt is $2.43 trillion. It doesn't take long for us to begin wondering about whether we own our stuff or our stuff, or more accurately, our creditors own us. Eventually, we come to the conclusion that money isn't a money issue. It's a hard issue. Suddenly, we find ourselves in a situation in which our lives are owned by a credit card company. All of our stuff, all those things filling our garage, begin to cause in us a kind of captivity we never imagined. We want to get a handle on our financial situation and create a legacy for our own kids so they avoid some of our same pitfalls. But that's just us, right? Our assumption is that people who have a lot of money don't really worry all that much about it. But even the wealthiest among us worry about money. Forbes recently published that over 60% of people whose worth is valued at over $5 million worry about money, particularly about teaching their kids how to manage it. It would be safe to say that people are concerned about managing their money in the present and securing their financial legacy for the future. For all of us, we'll need to learn the timeless, Bible-based notion of honoring God first with all that we have, becoming the generous people we'd hope to become, and that somewhere in the redirection of our hearts, we'll find the freedom we'd hoped. For some of us, we'll want to know how to manage our wealth, providing for our families, and learning how to join God in His work now. So, what do we do? There are 10 million millionaires in the world. Okay. I don't think you need it again, but... So what do we do? You know, it's not about transferring wealth. We serve Nicaragua as a country of focus for us. The average Nicaraguan makes, makes 62 cents an hour. 
The average Nicaraguan makes a little over $1,800 a year. Gas is $4.64 a gallon. And a gallon of milk is $4.18 a gallon. They make $0.62 cents an hour. If we gave them cabillions of dollars and all of a sudden handed out a million dollars to every Nicaraguan that there was, we would be struggling with the same issue. Comfort, convenience, consumerism, capacity to purchase, purchase power, all those types of things can corrupt if we are not diligent about managing the money monster. Because in just a few years, if all of a sudden Nicaragua came, became incredibly prosperous, they would be deal dealing with all the same things we as Americans have dealt with from the very beginning of our country and our prosperity and your prosperity. You think, if I could just get that promotion and get, just get that extra money, then I would feel safe and okay. Not true unless you deal with your heart first. Because this is not a Nicaraguan problem. It's not an American problem. It's a human problem. A human problem in the brokenness of sin that looks at money as and an greed or wanting more or us being the center of our world, not God. It's when we live with ourselves at the center of our world. That is the essence of consumerism. When we live with ourselves and our own wants and our own desires at the center of our world. That's why it's hard for us to, to read Psalm 23 and actually believe it. The Lord is my shepherd. I have everything I need. Not true. The new version of that video game came out and I don't have it yet. There's an upgrade to the phone that I want. I can't quite afford it yet and I'm not going to be happy until I get it. And then I'll be happy. And, or this promotion of this house or this vacation or this move or whatever it might be. Yeah, it's not an American problem or a European problem or a wealthy poor problem. Take all the wealth, money of the rich and give it all to the poor and they'll have the same problem as the rich have with regard to wanting more and feeling insecure. And It's because we've got to recognize that contentment in Christ and managing the money monster is not an issue out there. It's not an issue of external circumstances. It's an issue of an internal orientation. It's this right here. It's what Jesus is saying. No one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. That is why I tell you not to worry about everyday life. Can all your worries add a single moment to your life? So don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring its own worries. Today's trouble is enough for today. This is the word of the Lord. He says worry four times. He repeats worry four times. He repeats it dozens and dozens of times in the New Testament. And the New Testament repeats it far more than that. All about worry and anxiety and fear that often relate exactly to money. Comfort, convenience, 
And that relates to an internal orientation saying, if I can just get that or have this or achieve that, then I'll be content. And that's us when I say, what's the secret? And you say, getting that promotion. What's the secret? A new car. What's the secret? Having a baby. What's the secret? Getting married. What's the secret? Having a comfortable retirement. We have to ask ourselves that. Because as we wear this shirt, live the secret, what's the secret for you really, truly? How can you get yourself, you and the Lord alone, and say, search me and know me, anything in me, and let me know if you find any wrong way in me? How can you discern what secret you're living for? That is the power of managing the money monster. Once we reorient our our soul and our will is submitting and surrendering to the God of the universe who is our shepherd, then we can say with faith and truth that we are not worrying about every day. We are not worrying about tomorrow. We are not. Because the Lord is our shepherd and we have everything we need. Christ says to us in John 14, Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and also trust in me. That word let is actually the Greek word for a decision, for a choice. Do not let, meaning do not surrender your will. Do not let your heart, what do we talk about was heart and our anatomy of the soul? It is that central piece of you. It is indeed that will that is made by God to surrender. The money monster goes, and we surrender. And that is surrendering to an ogre, surrendering to a terrorist, surrendering to a beast that wants to manipulate But when we surrender to Christ, when we surrender to God, we don't let our hearts be troubled. So mastering the money monster, what does that mean? The video ended by saying, so what do we do? What do we do? I'm recommending a couple things. And so I'm going to start this week and I'm going to finish next week on how you can employ certain things to master the money monster and no longer have the money monster master you. Master the money monster by reinventing Lent. What's Wednesday? Ash Wednesday. And that's the beginning of? Lent. Well, for some of you, you're like, that's something we did in childhood. I can't wait for Lent. Chick-fil-A fish sandwiches are coming back. You know, we say that. You know, we, that's Lent to us. I'm really, really encouraging you to reinvent Lent. And you're going to start this coming Wednesday. This coming Wednesday, whenever you wake up, you're going to give up something. And I'm not, I'm not asking you to tell me what you're giving up this year. I'm telling you what you're giving up, okay? So I'm going to tell you what you're giving up, okay? okay? If I'm your pastor, I'm your authority. I'm your spiritual director. I'm your spiritual guide. Therefore, I'm going to tell you what to Lent this Lent. Some people are going, oh, yeah, sure. (laughs) 
like it's a like it's a coin you can just drop. I'll give that up. That's a, oh my goodness. I'm just asking you. I'm asking every person at the Heritage Soul Family and anybody watching online this Ash Wednesday. You start your Lent, and you give up worry. You give up worry. You might think it's easy. You might think it's just a decision. It's a conditioning process that will take you probably every bit of the 40 days of Lent all the way up to Good Friday, and you're going to have to see yourself nailed to the cross so that you can rise from the grave on Easter Sunday morning a new person. No longer beholden to the worries and cares of this world, but you will have learned over the last 40 days these 40 days that are coming up, you will have learned by Easter over the previous 40 days how to give up worry. And when you cast all your cares and all your anxieties on Him who cares for you, then and only then will you be managing the money monster and you'll have that money monster in a little hermit crab cage. And he'll be screaming and yelling to get out and you'll just be flicking him on the nose periodically as you move on without worry. So how do you do that? How do you give up worry? How do you give it up? I'm saying to you that how you give it up is that you invite the Holy Spirit into your worry. Every time you discover yourself worrying, and I'd like to invite other people to heckle you. Okay? So if, you, if you're a friend of somebody in this congregation and you notice the other friend in this congregation is worrying, they're expressing worry, you, I, you have your pastor's permission to heckle them. To heckle them. To, to call them out. To dress them down. But just remember, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. You're going to get it back in spades. <laughs> So if we all are busting each other's chops all month long, we may have all kinds of relational trouble and problems at the end, but we won't have worry. We will not have worry. Okay, we may be divided as a fellowship and punching each other, but we won't have worry. So you worry about other people not having worry, if you want to put it that way. Heckle them, call them out, challenge them. Say, hey, what's the secret? Ooh, that's going to sting. Because we want our worry. We want our worry. We want to worry. We're conditioned to worry. Some whole cultures are based on worry. Some whole genders are based on worry. Not saying which one it is. Wait a minute. I just stepped into it, didn't I? Yeah, just stepped into it. Yeah, got it. I'm not worried about that. (laughs) Still, I get home. Exactly. So here we are. We're in this position. How do you give it up? You invite the Holy Spirit into it. So I'm not worried when I get home and my wife says, excuse me, what did you say? Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, come. Invite the Holy Spirit into this, into every single worry, every little bit. When you wake up at 2.30 in the morning and immediately worry is right, the worry monster is right over top of you. You immediately greet the worry monster with, with, with the Holy Spirit invitation. Holy Spirit, come. 
Holy Spirit, Thou art welcome in this place. Come on. You can sing that. Sing it in the face of the money monster and see what happens. Sing it in the face of worry and see what happens. Quote the scriptures in Philippians 4, 11 through 13. This is spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare isn't waged one night in an altar. Spiritual warfare is conditioned over time where we become soldiers of righteousness and peace and shalom and contentment and we speak in the face of our enemies the things of Christ. We condition ourselves to not cower and worry and fret and fear and therefore we rise up and stand out as contrast people, contrast citizens in a world of worry. This is what it means to rise up, to put on the full armor of God, and to recognize that you can appear as disheveled as David in Saul's armor, but put on the full armor of God, and you're clinking around, and that armor will scare off all worry in the devil. Come on, people. You can be a warrior against worry, and it doesn't stand a chance. Next week, learn two actionable ways to master the money monster.